Be Christ's Church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke Podcast. Today our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word. We'll be in Genesis chapter 1 for most of our service. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. And I have more content to cover than I feel like I really have time. So I'm going to ask you to listen fast. Can you do that? All right. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. This is. Uh, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. The actual day is uh, January 22nd, but church is typically celebrated on the third Sunday of January. It's a day set aside to recognize the dignity of human life. And and we don't always pause for a special sermon on this topic on this day um, because I, I don't like the preaching schedule generally to be driven by holidays. I like it to be driven by the Holy Spirit. But it just so happened that We had finished Hebrews, and then we had our Advent series, and so we had a couple of Sundays that I wanted to share some topics from my heart over the last couple of Sundays, and today uh, we have the opportunity to dive in on the the subject, a very important subject, of the dignity of human life. It's an important topic because we live in a world where human beings, unfortunately, don't really appreciate what God created human beings to be. We see this all over the place, right? We see it in our national discourse, the way politicians speak to one another. We see it in the ways we tend to think that some people are of greater value or worth than other people because of their knowledge or their abilities or their wealth or their fame or their skill or the color of their skin or any other variable that we could come up with. We see it in domestic violence. We see it in verbal abuse, cutting sarcasm. We see it in the use of positions of power and authority, not for healing and wholeness, but for harm. We see it in acts of violence. We see it in the way that senior adults are often spoken of as a burden on society. We see it in the rampant disregard for unborn children. I must say, I'm glad that that many in our country have wanted to respond proactively to the COVID-19 pandemic. But I also want to say that I hope that this newfound respect for human life will spill over into our policy environment on much greater issues. There's been a pandemic in our country that's been underway since 1973, and it's called abortion. Abortion's taken far more lives than COVID-19. If we were to add up the entire populations of Maryland and Virginia and Tennessee and Kentucky and West Virginia and South Carolina and Georgia and North Carolina, if we would add up all those states... Every single human being alive in those states today, add them all up. You still wouldn't have the number of people whose lives were snuffed out just as they were beginning by the scourge of abortion since 1973. It isn't just the lives of babies that have been taken, stolen by our society, often with the help of our taxes. Abortion has also taken the lives of millions of mothers and fathers. Some through the medical complications that come with abortion. Others through the suicide that they committed 
sometimes months, sometimes years later, because they could not shake the guilt that plagued that decision. And many more who are still breathing but not really alive because they're suffocating under the weight of a decision they wish they had never made. The reality is, we have the hope of the gospel. We have the hope for that mom or that dad who made that tragic decision and Jesus died for them and can rescue them. He can mobilize us to pray as we will do after this service for the lives of those not yet born, for the mothers and the fathers who are being convinced by the world that they can't afford that child or the child's not worth it. We're going to pray. But why should we do that? Why, why do we care about this issue so passionately? I believe we need to go back to the beginning. We need to see as Christians, as a church, how we are to think about human life. How can we know that things like abortion and abuse and violence and cutting sarcasm and crude talk and assisted suicide are deeply wrong in the eyes of our holy God? And what should we do about it? Would you hear with me from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28, the word of the Lord. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and the over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I want to show you a few things from God's Word this morning. First, pretty simple point from verse 26. God, uh, humans are God's special creation. Humans, human beings, are God's special creation. You remember the story of Genesis? It, it progresses with these words quite frequently. Then God said, followed by let there be. For example, in verse 3. Then God said, let there be light. Then you see it again and again and again in verse 6 and verse 9, verse 11, verse 14, verse 20, verse 24. Then God said, let there be. Then God said, let there be. Then God said, let there be. But in verse 26, the the language changes to, then God said, let us make. What we have before us in verse 26 is the inner conversation of the triune God. It's what John Hammett calls the divine deliberation. Let us, Father, Son, and Spirit, the triune Godhead, let us make man. The difference between let there be and let us make is intentional. Hammett tells us this, the whole creation account in Genesis 1 is deliberately structured to reach its apex in the creation of human beings. Not of angels, not of lions and tigers and bears, oh my, not of galaxies and black holes, but of human beings. It's the capstone of God's creation. After six days of preparing everything else on the planet, God makes human beings. And He declares not just that it was good, but that it was very good. Verse 31. Humans do not exist independently. We are not God ourselves, but we are made in the image of God. We are not a random cosmic accident in an accidental world. We are created by 
and entirely dependent upon God, and yet we are people given responsibilities in and over God's creation that no other creature in the created order enjoys. It is humanity that is given dominion over the animals and charged to subdue them and rule over them. That's to consecrate the entire created order to the spiritual service of God and humankind. While we should not use God's creation unwisely or recklessly, we shouldn't just go out and burn down a bunch of trees for no reason. While we should steward God's creation, we also should not say that plants or animals or trees have more value than people do. We've got it all mixed up in our world. We're more concerned about puppies than people. And I love puppies. I love my little puppy dog until 1 o'clock when he wants me to go outside and use the bathroom. But generally speaking, I love my puppy. But my puppy is not the capstone of creation. Human beings are. So says Genesis 1.26. So God, humans are, are God's special creation. But secondly, all humans are persons created in God's image. What makes us special is not just God's special deliberation in making us, but also His special design. Do you see it in verse 26? He made humanity, mankind, in His own image. It is only humanity that's created in God's image according to His likeness. Now these words, image and likeness, are synonymous terms. They might have shades of different meaning, but they're used in Genesis 5 in the reverse order in the same way. So we, we ought not press too far to distinguish between image and and likeness. Taken together, the words mean that man is in some way a representation of who God is and like Him in certain respects. Three times in verse 26 and 27, we are told that people are made in God's image. We're not told exactly what God's image is, but whatever it is, it must be significant. In God's image, in God's image, in God's image, animals were made according to their kind, but human beings, however, are created in God's image. So what then is the image of God? I'm glad you asked. Theologians have, have offered three basic approaches to understanding, the, understanding that question. The first is this, the substantive approach. They, in the substantive approach, theologians focus on the the heightened capacities and characteristics and abilities that human beings have. People have a will. They have a conscience, an intellect, the ability to write and to speak and create and to innovate and to learn and to adapt. Humans are amazing creatures, are they not? I mean, we, the art of the Sistine Chapel, some of the, the poems and the music that I've encountered, the, 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 some of the things that athletes are capable of. People writing poetry, making music, loving their children. In the substantive approach to what the image of God is, it is the mental and communicative and creative powers. It's the conscience and it's the ability to choose direction that make up the image of God in man, that differentiate man from everything else. But there's a challenge with this approach. And here's what it is. It leaves open the possibility that people who are not fully developed mentally or lack the typical and mental typical mental and communicative powers that they somehow don't have the image of God that you've you've got to grow and get to a certain age and have a certain ability to have the image of God but we know that can't be true because the image of God in people is not contingent upon their mental or physical capacities 
You say, well, how do you know that? Well, keep reading and get all the way to Exodus chapter 21, verse 22. And there's a, there's a law about if a man strikes a woman who happens to be pregnant and she miscarries, then that man is guilty of murder and must pay the penalty with his own life. This is consistent with what Genesis 9, 6 says. Whoever sheds a man's blood by his blood shall be sh- by man his blood shall be shed for in the image of god he made man life for life so from the beginning humans are made in god's image and whatever the image of god is even babies who haven't yet taken their first breath have it so what in the world is the image of god another approach is the functional approach Only humans, out of all created beings, are commanded to rule over creation, to subdue the earth. And therefore, in the the functional approach, the image of God refers to the fact that humans have special instructions from God that they are called to obey. Only human beings have a moral responsibility to God, unlike plants or animals who obey God's will involuntarily. You know, my big oak tree in my front yard, when when it woke up this morning, when it woke up this morning, it didn't have to pray for the fullness of the Holy Spirit today. It didn't have to say, well, I need to think about whether or not I'm going to obey God. It just, it just does. That my tree does exactly what God wants it to do without any deliberation, any consideration whatsoever. But we're people. And we have to volitionally obey God. But the challenge with the functional approach is much like the substantive approach. It doesn't help us address those who cannot receive God's revelation or fulfill his mandate because they're in the womb or they have some form of cognitive disability and we've got to affirm based on exodus 21 that even babies in the womb bear god's image and if even babies in the womb bear god's image then all people must bear god's image so what in the world is the image of god in man i'm glad you're still asking the final approach And I believe the best approach is the relational approach to the image of God in man. It includes the substantive and functional approaches. It doesn't discount that we've got the ability to communicate, that we have a more powerful intellect than the other created beings, that we we need to respond to God's revelation voluntarily, volitionally. But I, I believe the final approach, the relational approach, which includes those things, goes a bit deeper and and helps us make sense of how the image of God is in all people. What makes humans special is not ultimately our intellectual prowess or our ability to meaningfully communicate, to remember, or even our divine mandate. What makes people special is the capacity that God has placed within human beings for a relationship with Him. The capacity that God has placed within human beings for a relationship with Him. And how did He do it? He did it by creating only human beings with a human spirit, which is fully integrated into the totality of their being, such that the dispositions of our hearts and the deeds of our bodies impact our relationship with the Holy God. Hokema summarizes it this way, the most important thing about man is that he is inescapably related to, to God. And people are inescapably related to God because God has placed into humans the human spirit. As creatures, we are completely dependent upon God, right? 
Romans 9.21, he's the potter, we're the clay. And yet, as people with a human spirit, we are either rightly or wrongly related to God. And so as creatures, we're completely dependent upon Him, and yet, in some sense, as persons, we have some self-directedness about our lives. We are created and totally dependent. We are people and personally responsible. And you say, well, how does that work? I don't know. Theologians have been debating it for 2,000 years. I love what Hokema says. It is the central mystery of man. How we can be a creature and a person at the same time, but we know that it has something to do with the human spirit. You say, well, prove that to me. All right. You remember the story of Joshua and Caleb? The, The spies to go in and spy out the land, and Caleb wants to go, and the other spies don't want to go other than Joshua and We're told in Numbers 14.24, the reason that Caleb wanted to obey God while everyone else didn't is because he had, quote, a different spirit. When Pharaoh opposes God, it is his spirit that is troubled. Jesus says, those who will receive the blessing of the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5.3, will be poor in spirit. Mary in Luke 1.47 says, after she's learned that she's going to bear the Messiah, she says, my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. In Romans 8.16, Paul says, the Spirit Himself, meaning the Holy Spirit, testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. God has placed into humanity, into people, something He's not put in any of His other creatures, and it is the human Spirit, which according to Dunn, is that aspect of man through which God most immediately encounters him. It is the dimension of the whole man, wherein the and where wherein and whereby he is immediately open and responsive to God. That area of human awareness most sensitive to matters of the spiritual realm. This this view helps us make sense of the biblical data before us that all people Unborn fetuses like John the Baptist who leapt for joy when he heard the voice of Mary, the mother of Jesus, or the battered and bruised and crucified thief on the cross who trusted in Jesus only moments before he died. All those people from womb to tomb are made in the image of God. We may therefore affirm that each person has a capacity for a relationship with God because we believe that God has the capacity to reach every human spirit. Which, this helps us, right? This helps us understand how it is that God may deal with people who never have the the capacity to respond to His revelation. Hammett says this, Only God knows what is absolutely necessary for a relationship with Him. Only God knows how He deals with the spirits of the mentally challenged and compromised children and those with other disabilities. However, we often think about the possible exception, but the reality is that anyone who can hear my voice this morning online or in this sanctuary, or anyone who can wake up today and see the creation and know that there must be a creator, but they suppress the truth and deny it, they need to hear the gospel. And the only way that they can be saved is if they hear the gospel and are rightly related to God because the fall of humanity corrupted the image of God in us. We were made in God's image, but our fall into sin corrupted the human spirit. In fact, in Genesis 2.17, if you flip over one chapter, we see that God said to Adam, 
from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And guess what? Adam and Eve sinned, and Adam and Eve died. And Romans 5.12 tells us that their sin, in particular Adam's sin, through that sin, death spread to all men. In other words, the sin of Adam infects us all, first killing our spirit and eventually our bodies as well. This is why we say that the image of God in man is present, but it is corrupted or effaced in some way. The human spirit is still there. We, we see that in, in sports. We see it in art. We see it in so many ways, this, this human spirit. It's there, and yet it is dead with respect to the ultimate purpose of knowing and glorifying God. People still worship. They just don't worship rightly. They worship even the dead human spirit. Some people worship humanity. Some people worship sports or a great artist or a great musician rather than worship God, our Maker. They worship the things of this earth, which we just sang about. They should be growing strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. They follow themselves and make graven images rather than understanding God made us to bear His image. Why don't we need to make images of who God is? God made us to be His images on the earth. So why don't we go make some other image to worship? You're to be the one reflecting the glory of God to the ends of the earth. The amazing capacities that God has built into human beings to, to love and to build and to conquer and to explore and to design, these are all to be done in obedience to and for the glory of God, our Maker. And the only way for that to happen is for people to hear the good news, repent of their sin, and be spiritually renewed, made alive. The human spirit must, as Jesus says, be reborn, regenerated, activated by the Holy Spirit of God. The dead human spirit must be brought to life. And praise God, that's possible. The, the deadness that so many sinners feel can be alleviated through the healing touch of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus came to take our place. He came and as a man lived the perfect life of obedience to the Father. The very obedience that Adam did not give to God, Jesus did. He died so that He could pay the price of our sin. And in Colossians 1.15, do you know what Jesus is called? So we're made in the image of God, but the fall erased, not erased, effaced, it, it corrupted the image of God. Our spirit is there, but it's dead. And do you know what Jesus is called in Colossians 1.15? He's called the image of the invisible God. Do you think that's an accident? Of course not. What we lost in the fall, Jesus came to restore to us. He came to, to give us the image of God through His own life. This is why the Christian life is described in Romans 8. 29 is being conformed to the image of his son which means church through faith in jesus sinners can be made new and their spirit can be made alive to commune with god who is spirit we see this in romans 8 that god establishes his relationship with us by means of his holy spirit relating to the human spirit the Holy Spirit takes the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and applies it to our spirit so that our sins can be forgiven and taken away and our spirit can be awakened to the presence of God and we can commune with Him and live like 
Jesus in this world, bearing His image so that others might know Him. Which means we've got a mandate. We don't just pray our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. We don't just pray that the kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that His kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, recognizing that He's made us a part of His kingdom. And that He wants to use us to bring His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven. So finally, we don't just come to Jesus and have our dead spirit awakened to the Holy Spirit that we could commune with Him and then sit in a pew on Sunday for the rest of our lives. We do it, or He does that in us, so that we would live and love like Jesus. The, the Spirit of God has been renewed. The, the image of God has been renewed in those who are truly the church of God to be Jesus in the world. He is the head. We are His body. We are the hands and feet of Jesus right now. So I need you to flip all the way over to Luke 10. You say, you never preach like this. You're right, but it'll be okay. On Wednesday night, I was praying and I was meditating and I was asking God, how how do I conclude this message on the image of God in man before we go and pray on behalf of the unborn? And God brought the story of the Good Samaritan to my mind just so clearly. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Luke 10, there's a a Jewish lawyer who asked Jesus, well, Jesus, just tell me how I can have eternal life. And unlike in John chapter 3, when he says to Nicodemus, you've got to be born again, he says, well, I'll just tell you the two laws you've got to keep perfectly. Just love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, you've got eternal life. And if we're honest, that means we've got a big problem, right? I mean, none of us does that perfectly. The only way we can do that is is through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. So so Jesus lays out this big mandate. And then the lawyer asks, well, who is my neighbor? Can Can I tweak what you're asking me to do, Jesus, just a little bit? And I love how Jesus answers his question. He answers his question with a story. You remember how the story goes. A man, presumably a Jewish man, was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and went away leaving him half dead. And you remember what happens, right? A priest sees him, gets to the other side of the road and passes him by. A a Levite gets to see him, gets to the other side of the road and passes him by. Religious people who knew all the religious content, but they didn't go to the Samaritan. They, did, they didn't go to the man, rather, to, to give him healing. And then Jesus says, a Samaritan was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw me, he, he felt compassion, and he came to him, and he bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast, and he brought him to an inn and he took care of him and on the day that he took on that day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said take care of him and whatever more you spend when I return I will repay you which of these three the the priest or the Levite or the Samaritan do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers and he said the one who showed mercy to him and then listen to what Jesus said go and do the same If you've been restored by Christ, if your spirit has been made alive to the presence of God, then you are commissioned to go and do the same. 
The story of the Good Samaritan is a story, ultimately, of Jesus, is it not? Is Jesus not the Good Samaritan? Samaritan and Jews were enemies. We are enemies of God. We were left for dead in our trespasses and sins with no hope of healing. And no one was coming our way to pay the price for our sin and to bandage our wounds and to make us new. So God the Son left the glory of heaven and He came to our side of the road. And He said, the death that He deserves, that she deserves, I'll go ahead and take it. You go ahead and kill me and let my atoning sacrifice be the payment for their sin. And on the third day, he was raised to raise us up to new life. So this morning, we've got to recognize that we can be the good Samaritan because the good Samaritan has made us new. So as we go and pray for the unborn and the the expectant moms and dads who are surrounded by lies telling them to worship their financial prosperity and their comfort and their career rather than to bring that baby into the world, we go pleading for people to encounter the amazing love of God in Christ and to enter His kingdom. And i got to tell you, church, we pray after this service and we see it not as the end of our love for our community but only as the tip of the iceberg of what God would call us to do. God has called us to be salt and light in the world in which we live, which means we must pray for our governing leaders regardless of their party affiliation. Some of you are not happy about the election result. Some of you are very happy with the election result. I'm not here to talk about that today. But here I am to tell you, whether it's Obama or Trump or Biden, we're commanded to pray for our governing leaders. We can and should speak truth, but as we speak truth to power, we must not adopt the ways of the world when we speak. James warns us about our tongues, does he not? When he says, with the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in the likeness of God. My brethren, these things ought not be this way. So let me tell you, I, what, whoever you voted for in 2020... It's time to move on for the glory of God. We have a mandate to love our neighbor as ourself. So in this room, in this place, in this building, among these people, when people walk in these doors for the first time and they encounter us, they need to see us talking not about the politics of the day, but about the glory of our King. We are ambassadors of Jesus, and what they need to hear about more than anything is what Jesus has done to make their dead spirit alive through the gift of Christ. The world in which we live is plagued by sin. The abuse of drugs, the abuse of children, of spouses. Teen girls are being trafficked. And what has God done about it? He sent His Son to make us new so that we can love as He loves and see as He sees. And church, the love of God is costly. It will cost you something to love like Jesus did. It will cost you something to love like the Good Samaritan. And it is the love that costs, which is the love that heals. So as we go and pray silently in just a moment, it's going to cost us a little bit of time. It might cost us being a little bit cold. And it might even cost us a few one-finger salutes. But I pray that our praying will only be the beginning of how we love. Jesus is calling us to find ways to go to the other side of the road and to love. 
Who is God putting in your path that you would otherwise call an enemy to go and to love? Church, we can love like Jesus by fostering and adopting children. We can love like Jesus by being trained for disaster relief. And there's going to be a training session right here at our church later this year. We can love like Jesus by visiting the sick and the homebound. You say, well, it's COVID. You're right. You can make a phone call or send a postcard. We can love like Jesus by serving in the preschool ministry. You say, well, I don't want to serve in the preschool ministry. Well, let me ask you. When the young family comes who needs to encounter the love of God in Christ and they've got tattoos up their arms and rings in their nose and their ears and their head, wherever, what do they need? They need somebody to take care of their little child so they can hear the gospel and repent and believe. And if we're so entitled about what belongs to us and what is ours and we don't see the world as they are lost and dead on the side of the road and be willing to go to their side of the road and show them Jesus, then how are they going to know Jesus? Church, this is we are here for Jesus. We are here for the people who don't yet know Jesus. We can love Jesus by helping people learn the English language. We can love Jesus by donating a week of our vacation time to be a wind-shaped volunteer so that kids can hear the gospel in an environment of love and fun for an entire week from 7.30 to 5 o'clock every day of the week, five days of the week. It's coming up this summer. Praise God. We're going to get vaccinated and we're going to have a camp. Amen? Can you see it? I can see it. I can see kids running around and having a great time. We're going to need a lot of volunteers. We need your help. We can love like Jesus by noticing our waiter or our waitress and asking if we can pray for them. You know, that's so simple. You're ordering a meal, your waiter comes. They're living paycheck to paycheck. They're trying to figure out how to put life together. They don't know why their spirit feels so heavy. Their life is consumed with social media and maybe recreational use of drugs, shattered dreams, who their parents thought they would be or what they thought they would be, and they're taking your order and trying to be kind, thinking that if they make one mistake, you're going to cut their tip in half. We've got to love those people into the kingdom of God. We can love like Jesus by pressing delete on our social media posts. We can love like Jesus by voting kingdom values and then moving on in the work of giving ourselves for the sake of others no matter what the future brings. So as we go and pray in just a moment, church, we do not go and pray with the spirit of pride. We do not go and pray on behalf of any political party. We go and pray on behalf of the King of Kings who left heaven and first loved us. We don't go saying we're better than anyone else. We only go begging that God would work so that still more could encounter Jesus and truly come alive in Him. This morning, I don't know who God is calling you to love. I don't know who He's showing you is on the other side of the street. But I pray as we, in just a moment, stand and sing, that we would do so saying to God these, these words and truly believing them. God, 
whatever it costs me to go to the other side of the road and bandage the wounds of my neighbor who otherwise might be my enemy, I'm going. God, make me willing to go to the other side of the road and love like Jesus. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, we thank you that every human life is made in your image. We thank you that you made us different from the rest of your created order. God, that you put within us a human spirit. God, that you've given us the desire to create and to innovate and to conquer and to improve. God, we thank you for Jesus who renews that spirit within us, who revives that spirit so that we can come alive in Christ to the things of God. And Lord, we know we live in a world and a society where many people don't yet know Christ. We live in a country that is hurting because so many are so far from God. And yet, God, you've called us to be your people, to be your hands and your feet, to be builders of your kingdom, God, that you would work through us until you come again. And so, Lord, I pray that in 2021 you would help us, as we've seen in the last few weeks, to be a church centered in the Word and then compelled to go in your mission. And God, that you would find us respectful and mindful of every human being, praying, longing, and loving such that, God, you would, you would break hearts and that you would revive spirits and that you would revive many souls as they come to a saving encounter with the living Lord Jesus Christ. God, I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.